Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to A New Kind of PD, Teaching Channel's podcast where we tackle challenges in education and provide ways to inspire and engage in meaningful professional development. I'm Erica Snyder, Engagement Coordinator for Teaching Channel, coming to you from our location in Chicago, Illinois. This week, we'll be discussing professional development for deaf educators with Dr. Jenna Voss, Assistant Professor and Grant Mentor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders and Deaf Education Program at Fontfont University in St. Louis. We'll talk about how PD is the same and different for these educators, their families, and the students. And as always, we'll close the show with how to inspire PD about the topic in vibrant, collaborative ways. Thanks for being here, and if you're listening live, jump on into the chat room where we'll be posting links to materials related to today's show. Class is now in session. Hi, everyone, and welcome, Jenna. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to um, learn a lot more about the deaf community and deaf education in particular. Um, if could you go ahead and give us a little introduction about yourself and your background and how you became interested in deaf education? Sure, sure. So um, I'm a professor at Bonbon University, which you said, and my job right now is to um, really work with the undergrad and graduate students in preparing them to have careers in deaf education. So that's serving children with hearing loss and their families. Um, I became interested actually in high school when I volunteered at a summer camp um, here in St. Louis that was for children with hearing loss and their siblings and really looked at how um, you know the sibling relationship was impacted when a family member has hearing loss and um, my my interest sort of was always in a career in, t in the teaching profession but I um, I've said this before I'm embarrassed about it I didn't want to just be a teacher I, I know that sounds ridiculous now that I study the art and science of teaching and learning mm -hmm. Um, but at the time, I, um, you know, as a high school student, I just wasn't sure that that was the right path. And then I was um, fortunate to, you know, learn from these teachers and children who were teachers first, but second, really um, focusing on promoting language development and communication development. And that was the sort of niche or gimmick that just sold me on this. So um, after sort of that pivotal experience and then studying this in college for several years. Um, it, it was, I was lucky that it was the right fit. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting that you learned from the, the sibling relationship because I, when we, well, when I think about deaf education, you know, I think about children who communicate in different ways. So some yes. have verbal skills and some use sign language and, and some don't use either of those and they have to figure out what, you know, other means to communicate. So, can you fill us in on which one your work focuses on and what that absolutely. looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've sort of described in a really lovely, simple way the complexity of the, the discipline. And so, um, you know, often I'm at a gathering, a social gathering, and introduce myself as a deaf educator, and someone says, like, oh, immediately, it's like, you must sign. Yeah, you and must while, sign. It's like where your brain Yeah, goes. like that's. Yeah, that's kind of the assumption, which is a good assumption because many deaf people do communicate through signed language. So in the U.S., that's predominantly American sign language, a whole and complete, beautiful visual language. 
Um, but the families that I've chosen to serve and work with predominantly in my career, I sort of specialize um, in the, the strategies and activities that will support listening and spoken language development. So many, many deaf children um, ha have learned to utilize technology to gain access to sound, and then they communicate through speaking and listening. And that's often because a family made that choice for their child, just like parents make many, many choices for their children. So we sort of have in our discipline those who choose to use spoken language to communicate, those who choose to identify as culturally deaf and use sign language to communicate. And then, as you alluded to, we have um, people in the middle who either because of the um, access to services they've had or the decisions that their families have made, they either use some sign and some spoken language together. That can certainly be effective for some children and other times it ends up kind of being a mismatch of inefficiency if they don't have um, whole and complete language models in either sort of domain. So there's this broad range of ways people with hearing loss learn to communicate and um, you know if you start looking on Twitter sometimes these debates get fairly contentious mm -hmm. but I'm proud to be part of a professional learning community with um, teachers and experts who are experts in many modalities so I have colleagues who are passionate about deaf children learning to sign and I am part of a professional community where um, we are passionate about serving children in spoken language if that's what their families choose. Yeah, so that's, I find that really interesting. So I, in the classroom, I never had a student who had any hearing loss were, um, that, I, that I knew of at any rate that identified that way. Right, um, right. So the one thing we don't want, obviously, like we, we want people to, to just be informed about this in case they do have students in their population um, that do have hearing loss. Um, yes. But even if they don't, it's, I think it, the last time you and I spoke about this, I found it really interesting just to hear a lot of the strategies also apply to um, students who are learning another language. Um, yes. And so, like, if, if you're listening to us today, don't and you're like, I don't have any deaf students. In don't count it don't, out. Yeah, don't, don't count us out. Um, right. I found it like really interesting. Um, but knowing that that it's not a high number of students, can you talk a little bit about what the data of the deaf population and how many students are being impacted? And what it's kind of like. What are some of the challenges yes. related to the small population that are that do uh, identify this way? Yes. So um, hearing loss is considered a low incidence disability. So in the realm of special education services, um, there are professionals with expertise in specific disabilities or the range of disabilities. I'm speaking probably to your audience who knows much about um, professions in education and special education. but. Um, hearing loss is considered a low incidence disability. We believe currently the data suggests that about two to three out of every thousand children born in the U.S. have some detectable level of hearing loss in one or both ears. Hmm. Now, um, you know, on any given day in your classroom, you could have children who are experiencing mild or um, sort of temporary hearing loss. Every time you get an ear infection, you're vulnerable to having hearing loss. But the children that are served by deaf educators and speech pathologists and audiologists, related disciplines to um, deaf education, are those that have either permanent or fluctuating hearing loss that is consistent enough that it will impact their ability to learn 
um, language and learn to communicate in our sort of inclusive mainstream classrooms where so much information is delivered, you know, auditorily. Mm -hmm. um, so we are a low incidence disability, and while you think, oh yeah, two or three out of a thousand, that's still like a significant number of children. Right. You're right. That still warrants specialized um, educational educational support, but compared to um, a a di an incidence like a diagnosis of autism or um, learning disabilities, that certainly affects many more children than hearing loss. Um, the, the other point you started making was that many of the strategies that we use with kids with hearing loss are also relevant and applicable to other language learners, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone is a language learner when they're in the early years, in early childhood and early elementary. You're still learning about both written and spoken language. And if we think of that sort of third grade time when kids move from learning to read to reading to learn, that's all language. That's still all about language. So many of the strategies we use to support children with hearing loss could also be relevant to other learners learning language, even one language, even the language of their home in their school, like English. It's also likely very relevant to our colleagues who serve children who are English language learners or dual language learners um, because these kids are learning to code switch. They're getting um, input that is from different signals. So right, if you're hearing Spanish or Farsi at home and then you come to school and hear English and you're learning to read in English, your input is inconsistent throughout the day. That's not a bad thing for kids with typical hearing and typical cognition who will have really great benefits from being bilingual learners. But the reality is it's all about um, supporting that enriched language and communication environment so that kids can have good outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's where your program comes in. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you specialize in preparing professionals for service in the fields of LSL, um, specifically focused on the early years. Um, so what does that look like in practice for new educators? Right. Okay. So um, as you mentioned before, my department is the Communication Disorders and Deaf Education Department, and we are part of our university's College of Education and Allied Health Professions. So we, you know, literally share a hallway with um, professionals who are preparing to be speech language pathologists, special educators, regular educators, early childhood educators, the list goes on and on. Um, in our practice, we are preparing um, teachers to become certified teachers of the deaf. That certification category exists in my state, the state of Missouri. There's something similar to it in other states. Sometimes it's a special educator with a specific um, specialty. But deaf education is our discipline. And so, um, the students in our undergrad and then primarily um, our graduate program are working to serve children in a variety of settings. So it could be a self-contained classroom for kids with hearing loss where this teacher, this new professional is with them for the um, predominantly, you know, the most of their day based on their IEP minutes. Um, this professional could also work as an itinerant um, deaf educator. So an itinerant teacher is someone who both supports the students directly through direct service like pull out or push in in inclusive environments and in fact serves as a um, consultant or a coach to a regular educator who might not have had any experience with a child with hearing loss before. 
And then something unique about our program is that we are um, we have a special focus on preparing practitioners to serve families and children with hearing loss through the early intervention system. So that's Part C of the IDEA legislation. It's the Birth to Three program in each state. And that model is entirely different than a classroom direct service-based sort of scenario. So we want to make sure our practitioners have, have the skills and knowledge to coach parents or caregivers on how to best promote communication and language development throughout their daily routines. So these practitioners, you know, spend a lot of time in their car, they're driving to people's houses, to playgrounds, to the daycare, to, you know, the um, fast food playland. <laughs> Wherever parents and families really are is where the early interventionist needs to be in order to promote language and listening development in those natural daily routines. And this is the part that I was that I found really interesting because it, it sounds like your model is fairly blended, right? You've got teachers that are you know, taking what they're learning in the classroom and going out and applying it, um, and they're doing that in like the world as the classroom sort of setting, as opposed to the classroom classroom setting. Yeah. Um, yes. so can you talk a little bit about the role that the parents play in that and how you help these new educators understand that relationship and, and its significance in what it is that they're they're preparing the families for moving into the more formal classroom setting? Yes. So, um, you know, yeah, I'm going on and on about how unique our program is. And the reality is we're still a teacher preparation program. So we're still following all of our state certification guidelines. We still have coursework where we focus on theory and then we want to see that in practice in field experience or practicum settings. So much like any other professional preparation, there's sort of the on-site university learning and then the apply it in your practice in some way with your university supervisor watching you. But I think what um, is unique about our program is that this early intervention piece, those practicum and those field experience are happening in a family's living room and um, in their world. And so we need our pre-professionals, our future teachers, to be ready to coach families on how to enhance their communication through all of the child's waking hours, right? So no amount of direct therapy a teacher of the deaf who swoops in for an hour once a week or even an hour every day is not going to be able to have the same impact on that child's communication and language development as would the primary caregiver who is talking and communicating with that child with hearing loss all day long, right? So changing the diaper is an opportunity for learning and talking about, oh, I'm going to open the diaper, I'm going to wipe your bottom, ooh, pee-wee, it's so stinky, let me put your pants back on. All of that can be a language and an interaction opportunity. So we need our practitioners to, one, fully recognize the power of the parent-child relationship on communication and language development, and two, understand their role is most meaningful when they can support the parent and enhance the caregiver's competence to sort of steer the ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the, your students are learning how to coach parents, which is a different way of, of yes. looking at the education role. Normally when we think about coaches, we're thinking about, you know, a 
master teacher or teacher leader who's coaching an in-service teacher in the school. And that's not the situation for your, for your cohort, which is really, I think is a really interesting model. And, you know, the literature, the coaching literature that we use to teach this theory is likely the same as that literature that's guiding, you know, your sort of like seasoned expert professional coaching um, a novice teacher. So, you know, I, I teach a family-centered early intervention class, and we use the Russian Sheldon work um, that really looks at the, the five effective practices of coaching and and that can apply to the coaching relationship you've described where, you know, my senior mentor teacher is speaking, coaching me through my first two or three years on the job. But it's the same framework that can apply to coaching a caregiver to do their very best with their child. And so I think that's one of the really powerful things about this program and this practice is that when our practitioners come out, and are ready to enter the workforce, sure, they might not all be parents, and they might not have lived and walked in these parents' shoes, but if they fully believe and adopt the coaching principles, they don't have to be the expert because the parent is, and they're just the facilitator of that expertise. So I hope there's a real strong duality here that when you understand a coaching mindset and a coaching practice, you can move in and out of those roles pretty seamlessly, right? You could work directly with the child. You could coach the parent to do that. You could coach a classroom teacher that you're called in to consult with because they have their very first child with hearing loss on their caseload in their 10-year career. Um, So, you know, really this skill set is going to set them up for a wide range of practice in their career. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned um, is that, you know, with the the practicums are are often in a whole bunch of different settings. How do you as the supervisor of the program then like use, and we've talked specifically about this, use video. We love yeah. video at Teaching Channel. So how are you using <laughs> video to help support the whole mentoring, like the whole program in itself and giving, yeah. you know, positive feedback and constructive feedback to, um, to the, the students in your classes? Absolutely. I love that the Teaching Channel loves video because I um, sound like a broken record often to my students when I'm saying things like, you got to get over the pain of just making a video of yourself, watch yourself, you learn so much. Um, So yes, video is a critical aspect of the way that I, as the university supervisor, am able to promote uh, reflective practice and, in fact, coach the you know, practicum student on how to improve their skills. So when our students are in a family-centered practicum, they are the tag-along with the early intervention provider going out into a family's home. So we are already creating this sort of awkward, artificial situation where the early intervention provider, what you might refer to as like the cooperating teacher, has a caseload of families that she serves, and she has worked over time to establish a relationship with these families because we know coaching cannot be effective unless it is grounded in a strong relationship. So now we're interjecting a lowly practicum student into this sort of dyad, and that in and of itself, um, we recognize the we humbly recognize how important it is to have cooperating teachers and practitioners to allow our students to come. But the challenge is I need to see when it's that 
student teachers time to lead a portion of the session, I need to be able to see what they're doing. I need to see, I need to be able to give them feedback on their practice. I need to be able to have some knowledge that I can give them a grade, frankly. So instead of me schlepping along to these home visits and being another, another body mm -hmm. in the family's living room with their six-month-old and they're worried about, you know, picking up their house so that these strangers can come in, we have found video to be a really effective way to sort of see it and be there. Now, it doesn't come without challenges to ask families for us to record in their home. Um, the programs that act as our cooperating practitioners have legitimate concerns about the security of the video and how it's being used, but we're able to have, you know, memos of understanding and requisite permission slips to capture this video. And once we do, um, you know, the, the technology, there's a wide range of technology that practitioners and cooperating teachers use. Sometimes we're capturing it on an iPhone, sometimes they bring the iPad, sometimes it's a video camera or you know, even five years ago was a flip camera, so right. we get the video, <laughs> and usually, <laughs> yeah, usually I then go to the um, the agency where the cooperating teacher works, they store the video there, and I sit down and I watch the video with the practicum student. So I've, certainly I can watch it after the fact by myself and fill out some rubric and give my comments back, but what I think is even more powerful is when we sit down together I first ask, how do you think it went? What do you, you know, what do you recall about the session? And then we watch the video together, pausing very frequently. And you know, nine times out of ten, I don't have to do much talking. Just the nature of watching this video together, the student, the cooperating or the practicum student, already has many ideas about how it went. And sometimes those are in line with the reality that they're seeing on the video, and sometimes they're not. So I guide them through this reflective um, analysis of their performance, and um, it's so much more powerful even than had I gone along on the home visit and sat in the living room and took notes on a legal pad, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we notice that a lot, the, the teacher perception and then sitting down and having them actually watch their film. Um, is Yeah, there's plenty of data to say, you know, um, even in the coaching literature of like you thought you were using a, an effective coaching practice and then when you really watch it and try to operationalize and define when and how you use the practice, um, you know, there's a lot more direct teaching than there was coaching going on. So when the student can see that and come to that themselves, um, it's a real powerful learning opportunity. Definitely more impactful from our experiences too. When the teacher can can come to that um that realization on their own. Oh yeah, that's really what happened in that lesson. Yes, not what yeah. I thought. And, yeah, and sometimes that's on the positive too, right? Oh, yeah, I have sure. students whose <laughs> whose confidence and competence aren't um, aren't commensurate, right? So they feel like it was a total disaster and that nothing went according to their plans. And then we watch it, and and maybe it didn't go as they planned, but there could still be really powerful learning on behalf of the student or of the child or the parent. Mm -hmm. So you've described a little bit about what the collaboration and reflection looks like um, with that example. Is there more that your program does when you're emphasizing collaboration and reflection? Um, and what does that sound like or, or look like? Yeah, so collaboration and reflection are, I guess, two of our favorite buzzwords here at BAMPA in, um, in, the, in the Communication Disorders and Deaf Ed Department. So we prepare speech language pathologists and deaf educators, 
And those are two disciplines that have um, a fair amount of overlap in their professional practice. Mm -hmm. And either discipline in practice needs to be um, ready and willing to work in teams and on teams, much like any special education um, mindset should be, really. So we emphasize to a very large degree collaboration and reflection both in our pre-professional preparation. And I joke because sometimes the students are like, oh my goodness, say it again, Jenna. Like, could you possibly keep talking about this anymore? How many more reflections do we need to write about our performance? Um, but then when we follow up with our graduates a year out when they're in our mentoring program, two years out when we're asking them to fill out an employment survey, five years out when they're serving as cooperating teachers for our current students, we hear again and again and again how valuable our emphasis on both collaboration and reflective practice has been in their career. So it's not just, um, it's not just the buzzwords that we're speaking about, it's actually how we're living it. So we do this intentionally. Our students take courses that are offered by and with um, regular educators, special educators, and other disciplines because we feel like there's a shared knowledge and shared understanding. We have seminars where students are intentionally in mixed groups of speech pathologists and deaf educators so that we can learn where our practice overlaps and where it does not. They work together on group assignments where they have to figure out how to speak the same language <laughs> and, um, and have all of their individual priorities embedded in case studies or lesson or session plans. And then, um, you know, I think I've already addressed relatively extensively this focus on reflection. That if you are a reflective practitioner, even in your earliest phase of your career, then that just becomes sort of your mode of operation throughout your career. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that that's sort of your understood normal. Yeah, and we need and and we need all that. We need that reflective practice built in more so. Absolutely, because you know, if, yeah, if you're just <laughs> if you're just um, you know shooting from the hip and like planning and doing and then moving on from that, that's just a ridiculous amount of missed learning opportunities and really no way of knowing if your teaching had any impact on child or family outcomes. Right. Really. So without that. Mm -hmm. Yet, without that reflection, we we aren't analyzing our data and we aren't changing our practice going forward. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the the profession moving forward. So you're you're a fairly small community of student teachers and higher ed professionals. Um, how do you all work together to build meaningful PD experiences once once people are you know, out of the program? And what does that look that's, like for the, the yeah? That's a great learning? question. I feel like we're still pretty green in this, you know, like the discipline of deaf education has been around for 150 or more years, longer than that actually, but anyway, I feel like we haven't really gotten on the ball with a systemic um, community of professional learning. It, it certainly happens in pockets, mm -hmm. so I don't want to like, you know, throw anyone under the bus here as I'm speaking, but I feel like there's some exciting things sort of on the horizon. So. Way back at the beginning of our conversation today, we, um, you know, sort of discussed the sometimes bifurcation in the field of professional expertise. So professionals who serve children in one communication modality versus the other. Mm -hmm. And I think, as a whole, we haven't viewed 
our professional learning community as a cohesive network of those professionals who promote sign language and those professionals who promote spoken language. Yet, I think that's a real opportunity, and I'm excited to be part of a few initiatives that are sort of looking at that in a more collective way. So there are professional learning communities that are specific to those working in spoken language, but there's a group of us, um, actually, as I was working on my PhD, along with some other um, fellows who were supported by the federal government to um, get degrees in higher ed in the low incidence fields of vision loss, hearing loss, and deaf blindness, mm. we sort of became our own professional learning community and were like, oh wow, I never would have thought that the challenges you face in doing research and professional preparation for kids with um, vision loss are the parallel or similar to those in hearing loss. And then even for those fellows who were in this discipline of hearing loss, you who are preparing professionals to sign and me who are preparing professionals to have spoken language, we sort of, until we were forced to share hotel rooms at a conference, never really had the like heart-to-heart -heart conversation to realize we had more in common than we have different. So um, there's a group called the Radical Middle DHH, which stands for Deaf and Hard of Hearing, that's trying to be really intentional about looking at research opportunities and professional preparation opportunities, professional learning opportunities, that go across modality. So that's one exciting initiative is like we're getting on the ball with um, talking to our colleagues who have a different focus area. Another exciting opportunity um, is something that our listening and spoken language professional community is trying to do and that's sort of rope in every professional, not just the deaf educator, who serves a child with hearing loss. So that includes audiologists and speech language pathologists. And we have a national professional organization um, related to supporting spoken language outcomes. So that's called the Alexander Graham Bell Association for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. And um, that's they host a conference one year for families and professionals and then a research symposium in the off year that's a really lovely, big, splashy, like everyone come together for professional development conference style. Mm -hmm. But now there's this other group um, that's supported by a private foundation and they're really establishing an online professional learning community for these same professionals who support spoken language and that's called hearingfirst.org. And so I'm excited to see how that's going to develop because they're really trying to make um, an online space for continuing this learning ongoing, not just sort of in these big conference style ways. So they're trying to capitalize on the use of social media and connectedness. You know, we all, we have our professional connections. We have our alumni networks that I feel like practitioners stay touched in with, but um, we can't afford to not be connected to one another because we're sort of doing all this work all over the country, all over the world in these tiny pockets. Tiny silos, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we see that we see that with some of the other, um, you know, teachers who are the one-off in their district or the one-off in their building, and and they're constantly craving for that connection with other people that do the same work, um, or similar work across the country. So that's awesome. Absolutely, that you all are building that network on for your for your students. So for those listening with a student on their caseload, where do you recommend that they begin learning? 
That's a great question. So I think first you look to your local, your school, your district resources. And as you've alluded to, you know, sometimes you are the lone special educator. You don't even have a deaf educator for your district. So, so you're right, like where do you really start? And thank goodness for the internet so that you can be virtually connected. There are professionals who will happily coach or provide consultative um, support services to the children on your caseload or to you as the, the educator. So that's one option. And a lot of that support comes from the private um, schools that focus on serving children who are learning to listen and talk with hearing loss. So you can turn to the schools like, um, you know, there are the really great practicum sites where I send my students, but one where I used to work was Central Institute for the Deaf. And so um, Central Institute for the Deaf or the Clark Schools in the Northeast region or Sunshine Cottage in Texas or Listen and Talk in Seattle, these are the programs that have been serving children with hearing loss for decades. And now they're recognizing that we aren't just only going to serve the children that are in our school buildings. We're going to really provide professional learning for our colleagues in our region and um, in a larger, larger network. So many of these school programs have entire sections of their website for professional learning. And there are webinars and um, assessment materials and curricular materials that you can purchase from these programs. This is a neat um, way of thinking about professional learning in my mind because here I sit in my university office and I feel like universities are often sort of the home for the current theory and practice and research that informs that practice. But now when we see our alumni working in programs, really doing um, action research or clinical um, data collection, they become the the holders of this knowledge and the disseminators of this expertise. So find the school in your region or beyond that has this um, offering and really take advantage of that. They are, these professionals are very interested in connecting with those who are not um, specializing in deaf education and they can um, establish a relationship and provide ongoing support to the extent that it's needed, whether that's a one-off workshop and professional learning opportunity or whether that's an ongoing coaching consultation relationship to support the children on your caseload. And we'll link in all of these websites too when we put the podcast out. So if you've missed them while Jenna was talking, don't worry, we've got you covered with the, the websites too. Perfect, perfect. But we also, we, we, we would not be fair if we did not mention the fact that uh, you're also an author. And so we should talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. So I um, had the privilege when I was working for Central Institute for the Deaf to co-author um, a, a book that was really designed for caregivers. Um, it's called Small Talk, and it's really the, the early guide for caregivers of children with hearing loss who are learning spoken language. And Ellie White, my um, colleague and dear friend, and I worked on this book so that it would have a lot of the information that those early interventionists are sharing with families through their coaching model, but it was sort of collected in one neat, pretty package that for the parent who likes to read a chapter in advance of the home visitor coming, you can do that, or for the family that can't remember everything that was said in the session and needs to like look at a chart afterwards, it's there in the book. 
One benefit we found of this text is that um, because it was written in a language that was for families and really extensively describes key terminology in the field and some um, complicated concepts fairly basically, it's also been a really useful tool for um, professional preparation programs who may not specialize in early intervention but want to ensure that their practitioners have sort of this cursory level of knowledge um, before they graduate. So we're finding professional preparation programs are using Smalltalk as a course textbook as well. Hmm, that's so great. And again, we will link that one in in case um, our listeners are yeah, interested in, in looking at that as well as a resource for them. My shameless plug is that it's only $50 and it's available on Amazon. So um, <laughs> if that's the way you buy you know, professional materials, like it's super easy. So Thank goodness for Amazon and, yeah. <laughs> and their two-day prime delivery. You could have there it by the go. time the weekend comes around listening to this podcast. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so, so there's our bell and we're going to say, um, we're, we're going to wrap it up for today. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jenna. It was really interesting hearing about um, one of the the views into um, deaf education. Really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I know that you'll um, tell this to your audience, but I'm happy, happy to connect with anyone if they shoot me an email or um, be in touch. So two ways you can find her are on the Fontbonne Communication Disorders and Deaf Education Department on Twitter at FBUCDDE or on Facebook at facebook.com slash CDDE. Um, and we'll put those links in the podcast as well. You can follow me at um, Snyder underscore Erica on Twitter. And thanks to Paul Testy's Mad Grunge Band Skills for providing our music and the Teaching Channel staff for all your work getting a new kind of PD up and running. Thanks to our listeners for being here today. And if you like what you hear, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Jenna, thank you again so, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. And we'll see you back here in two weeks where we'll be discussing grassroots PD efforts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.